0: Welcome, or welcome back, to the Northwood Podcast. This is Tommy, lead pastor of Northwood Baptist in North Charleston, South Carolina, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to take a few moments to listen to this podcast today. Do me a favor, at the end of this podcast, take a moment to subscribe. That way you can have new content delivered to your device every single week. And check out our website, northwoodbaptist.com, and learn about all that's taking place in the life of our church. I hope this message blesses you, and I hope it helps you to connect faith to life. Amen. Good morning, Northwood Baptist Church. My name is Logan Cato. Obviously, have a little more hair than Tommy does. I'm going to speak a little more slowly than Tommy does. Um, pray for Tommy and his family. as they a way on vacation visiting family? Also. Be in prayer for our students there in Chattanooga this week on a mission trip, so be in prayer for them. I am the pastor of missions and discipleship here. We've been here for just over a year now, and we've loved it. It's, if You all have been great to us. We love being here. We love living in this part of the state. I've been married to my beautiful wife, Heather, for just over two years. We Two years has past May. We have a nine month old daughter. Her name is Kaylee. She is crawling all over the place. She's getting into everything. So we've been chasing her around. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, that's James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Several weeks ago, Pastor Tommy told me, Hey, I'm going on vacation. Would you like the opportunity to preach? I said yeah of course I'd love to do that thank you for the opportunity um, he said I don't know where we'll be we'll be somewhere in the book of James I said okay and so then a couple weeks ago I found out well I have James chapter 5 1 through 12 and if you're at all familiar with the text we're going to look at today uh, we get to talk about money and suffering now that's what every young minister wants to preach his first sermon in his new church about is money and suffering right um, I'd much rather preach about something on missions and discipleship, but we're, faith, we're being faithful to God's word, we're going through this book, and so we're going to look today at James 5, 1 through 12. Um, I want you to know today that I'm not bringing any of my own wisdom to you. Um, I am 28 years old. I've got a young family. We're trying to figure out our, finan- our finances. Um, I'll just be honest, I haven't suffered a lot in my life. And so anything that I have from personal wisdom and experience is going to be of no use to you. But I get to stand on the truth of God's word. And so it's actually been a good exercise for me and Heather this week. as we've wrestled with this text to think about how does God want us to use biblical wisdom And how does that look for our finances? How does that look during suffering? How does that look with the honesty of our words? Um, So I am a brother in Christ. I'm here humbly this morning to preach this text. I want to be an encouragement to you all as we think about this together. So if you would stand, as we honor the reading of God's word. If you're new with us or if you've been visiting us, We do this because as a church, we want to say together that we're coming under the authority of God's word, that this is what we're standing on, the truth of these scriptures. We believe them to be true. We preach them. We proclaim them. And so we do this week in and week out for that reason. Um, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Pray with me. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for the spirit, God. And I pray this morning that you would hide me behind your cross. That your spirit would move. God, I pray for the brothers and sisters in this room. That this would serve as an encouragement to be on your mission. To use your wisdom in every area of our lives. God, I pray for those in this room who are not believers, pray you would save them, pray you would allow me to be faithful to this text, faithful to who you are and what you have done for us. God, we love you, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. You may have a seat. So as you can tell from the reading of that text, we are going to be all over the place this morning. Uh, Not only did Pastor Tommy give me the luxury of preaching on money and suffering, this this is about three sermons packed into one. So we're going to cover a lot of content in a very short amount of time. As we've been studying through the book of James, I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope it's been encouraging to you. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he came around late to believing that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. But he's writing this letter to the to the diaspora to these jewish background believers who were spread out among the nations he's encouraging them and he's reminding them to stay true and hold on to their faith right that their lives should be in accordance to the faith they proclaim in Jesus Christ and here as we as we jump into this text he's he's going to address the the world he's going to address the church and He's going to play off of those two and, and call the church to live differently than the world does. And he's going to tell them to be patient while they do it. So we want to start with verses 1 through 6. And the main point for these six verses that I want you to see, I want you to be wise with your money. James is telling us that we need to be wise with our money. Again, he's writing these first six verses to those who are outside of the church, to unbelievers. He's looking at the world. He's condemning them for the way that they store up their treasures, the way they use their money. Um, And he's causing, he's telling us to not, um, that we want to use our money wisely. If you make $25,000 or more per year in this room, you're among the top 1% of the world's wealth. Now, especially if you're a student in this room or a college student, you may be thinking, man, I love $25,000. Right, But if you're paying rent every month or a mortgage, bills, whatever it is, $25,000 is not going to get you very far. But if you make that or above, you're in the top 1% of the world's wealth. Um, America is an extremely wealthy country. And um, we have privileges that that most people in the world don't have for for simply being able to go out to eat dinner, um, to have electricity. There's so many people around the world who are poor and suffering and dying. Our culture promotes this wealth that we have. And everywhere you look in our culture, they're going to tell you that you need to accumulate as much as you can. Right? Give me more. All the ads that we see on a daily basis are aimed at getting you to try to buy something new because that new thing is going to make you a happier individual. Right? You may be thinking, if I could just get into a little bit bigger of a house, we'd be be happy. If I could just get that new pickup truck, if I just had a boat so I could go fishing when I want to, right? Our culture and our society tells us this on a regular basis, that having more will lead to happiness. We get this from our, our entertainers, from actors, musicians, athletes. We, we look at their lives and we say, man, they look like they've got it together. They look like th- that's the kind of life I'd want to have, um, So we're going to do a test case here. How many of you are familiar? You don't have to know anything by him, but are at least familiar with the rapper, hip-hop artist named Drake? Okay, that's way better than the first service. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure Pastor Tommy is watching this on live stream, and he's shaking his head because my first illustration point is going to be Drake. But Pastor Tommy, that's what you get when you let a millennial preach. So Drake is a rapper. He's a hip-hop artist. He's very popular. Um, he he is worth a lot of money. He's got about 56 million followers on Instagram. If you're unfamiliar with what Instagram is, it's kind of like Facebook. If you're still unfamiliar with what Facebook is, it's like receiving a lot of mail every single day, right? So imagine that 56 million people have your address and they can send you mail whenever they want to. But very popular. His Songs. he's a musical artist always on the top of the charts he's worth about 150 million dollars um, he gets paid two million dollars every time he does a show uh, he's got several homes he's building a mansion in Toronto he's from Canada he's got several homes in Los Angeles he's got over around 10 very expensive cars right and he likes to brag about it and his music as is with rap music there's this bravado that, that he has and this machismo and this braggadocious nature to his rap music in which he gets to boast about his wealth, right, about his possessions, right, about the number of, of women that he can have. And this is what his music is largely about, as is with much rap music. Right, so in his latest album, um, most of his songs are in that nature, but one of his songs... Um, is called is there more and in this song this is exactly what he does he brags about how much stuff he has says look at all the stuff that i have look at all the opportunities i'm afforded because of my wealth and possessions and all this but at the end of the song he says this he says am i missing something that's more important to find like healing my soul like family time is there more to life than just when i'm feeling alive is there more we're talking about a guy who's got everything that he could possibly want in the world, right? And at the end of the day, when he lays down at night, he's asking this question that so many throughout the history of the world have asked, is there more than this? Is there more than just this material realm, right? Now, now Drake is by no means a philosopher or a theologian in any real sense, but many philosophers and theologians have sought to answer this question. Is there more than just the things that I can have in this life and as christians right we believe this book is true we believe this is good this question has been answered for us long long ago right? if you if you're familiar king david's son king solomon right he takes over the throne and he asked god for one thing he said god grant me wisdom right and with that wisdom king solomon is able to to make the kingdom of israel great beyond measure he starts, he starts using his wisdom for his own benefit. He starts going against what God would have for him and his people. And he starts g- gathering possessions, right? And he's got 300 wives, got 700 concubines, he's got vineyards and houses and everything that he could possibly want. Well, King Solomon, who I believe wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he's looking back at the end of his life and he's measuring up, what was all of that worth? What was all of that for me? Um, So we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And This is what he writes. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any. Who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So the problem that Drake is experiencing, right, and so many within our American culture who are building up wealth, gathering possessions, King Solomon said, I had this figured out a long time ago. I could have told you a long time ago Right, that all this was vain. The theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is that all is vanity, all is lost, all striving after the wind. All right, so for us, as we're sitting here, James is warning the world against storing up their treasures. The question for us is what does that look like in our own lives? Right, what is the treasure in your life that you're storing up? Because if you're in Christ, when we die, we believe that you'll go to be in the presence of God. But what you will not take with you is a suitcase full of the things you have back home. Right? Your car, if, if you die tomorrow, guess what? They'll sell it to someone else and it'll make it to a junkyard eventually. Your home will wither and fade. Right? The boat, whatever it is. All those things are fleeting. So for us, today we don't want to place our faith in earthly treasures. We want to place our faith in the things that are coming in heaven, right? And it's so easy for us in the church to get sucked into this mindset that, well, I just need a little bit more. I had this, I had this thing. If my house was just a little bit better, if, if I had it a little more put together, right? Um, and, and from a long time ago, we've been told that you can acquire all the things the world has to offer, and it's not worth anything in comparison to know in Christ Jesus. So don't place your faith in earthly treasures. Verse four, he says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And so what's going on here is that, again, these Christians are spread out among different nations, and there's landowners. And these landowners have large areas of land, so they'll have people come and work for them. And as would be normally expected, the workers, they they do their job, whether it's mowing the fields or picking crops or planting or whatever it may be. At the end of the day, they expect their payment, right? Well, what these landowners are doing is they're getting people to work for them, and then they're not paying them their money, which in, in this situation, because finances were tough to come by, money's hard to come by, right? Getting your payment at the end of the day, that might mean whether or not you're going to get to eat whether or not your family gets to eat that evening. And so he's warning these landowners against doing that. Now, I think I can pretty confidently say this. I doubt there's anyone in this room who's a landowner who's not giving payment to the people working on their land. At least I hope that's not the case for you. If it is, you need to repent and not do that, right? How does a verse like this, how can we take a spiritual principle from what James is saying here and apply it to our lives? As, as we look at this, these landowners were practicing financial injustice, right? They're not giving payment that's due in reserve. So what does that mean for us? It means that we, as the church, as believers, should practice financial justice. That sounds good, right? As I, was, as I was writing this sermon out, I was thinking through this stuff. I came across this. I was like, well, they're, being, they're practicing injustice, so financial justice. That sounds like a good biblical thing, like a big theological. That sounds good. I sat there, and I was like, what is financial justice? Right, what does that look like in our lives? And I, I think there's plenty of points of application that we could make on this about what financial justice looks like, but it is doing with our money things much differently than what the world does with their money. We spend our money differently. We use our finances differently for the mission of God. If you're in Christ, you've been saved from your sin and put on God's mission. Right? So everything that we do, whether it's finances or time or whatever it is, should be for that aim right? to see people reach with the gospel, to see the kingdom of God spread out over this earth. That's financial justice, using your money for those ends. Right? The scriptures are replete with examples about caring for the orphan, caring for the widow, right? caring for those who are less fortunate, whether that be in the church or outside of the church, using our money for those purposes, for the hope that people will come to faith in Jesus Christ, right? The kingdom will spread. Very practically, if we did an exercise where said, "Okay, next week, what we're going to do is we're going to come in here, and I want everyone to bring their budget with them. Right? And I want everyone to bring their budgets in, and so we can we can look and compare budgets. You might look at some budgets, and after you pay your mortgage or pay your rent, pay your bills, we see where your money starts to go. Maybe it's toward vacation. Maybe you're you're saving up year in and year out so you can." Take the family on a vacation. Um, maybe it's for that new boat. Maybe I got this money, so I'm, I want a boat. right? Maybe it's a, it's a new car. Maybe it's, we're saving up for a new home. Um, nothing within in that is, is problematic in itself, but your budget reflects your priorities, whether you mean for it to or not. Now, when I was, I was, I was growing up, I did not know much about budgeting. Thankfully, my wife she She did know a lot about that, and so I've actually learned a lot about how to budget and how to spend money wisely and how to put money away for savings and do these things um, since we've been married but one of the things that when we got married, we decided that we wanted to do was have a line item in our budget for blessing people right we're blessed in order to be a blessing to others um, and so whether that is whether that's just hey, I'm at the gas station and Someone needs. Someone came up. They need something to eat. We have money for it. We have money set aside in order to do that. Maybe it's, hey, we've got friends that want to go on a mission trip. We we have the opportunity to bless them. Maybe it's supporting a church plant. We have that because we set it aside, right? We can have really good intentions to say, hey, yeah, we want to use our money for the mission of God. But if we don't actually plan to do that, it's really easy to use that money elsewhere so that's just a very practical example and I would ask you to reflect on what does your budget look like right for some of you in this room you're retired maybe maybe you have some money that's saved up what are you doing to help those younger than you think really well about how to to use their money for the glory of God right parents what are you doing for your children to help them figure out how to use money for the glory of God all right, college students, if you're in this room, go ahead and start thinking toward, man, how am I going to set my finances up so that I can be effective for the work that God is doing right, right here in Charleston, across this nation, across the world? Um, we want to be a people who practice financial justice. We'll look at verses 5 and 6. James says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts. In a day of slaughter, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Man, this is some encouraging stuff, am I right? Some uplifting stuff going on right here. Um, James paints this picture, right, of, of the rich of this world fattening their heart for a day of slaughter. Now, what does that mean and what does that look like? you're like me, I grew up in a a smaller town in South Carolina, and so very often I would find myself driving beside pastures, right? Big pastures, and I would pass them typically on a daily basis, and one day I would drive by, and there would be a bunch of cows all gathered together, and, and they're eating, right? They're eating. Drive by the next day, they'd move to a different part of the field, but what are they doing? They're eating, right? I mean, cows have it pretty good, go to sleep what are we going to do when we get up we're going to eat we're going to eat until we go back to sleep they go back to sleep and like all right you ready to do this all right we're going we're going to eat and farmers set these fields up right so they have plenty of space to do this so that they never run out of food But see what the cows don't realize is that they're being prepared to become somebody's juicy hamburger right farmers like fat cows we like them big, right? More money, more meat. But the cows have no idea this is happening, right? They're just eating to their heart's desire. They're unaware that they're prepared for a day of slaughter. So James is looking at the world. He said, hey, you don't realize what's coming. Right? Especially in our culture and our society, It's everywhere. The pasture's really big and there's a lot to feast on. Right? The implicit thing for the church, for Christians reading this letter, right, is that we need to be prepared for judgment. See, the world is prepared in the sense that they're getting fat on the things of the world. Right? But we need to be prepared because we know that Christ is returning. I think about this text forced me to think about this, but I think about this often, right? the, The title of this sermon is Wisdom in the Last Days, and James uses that language here. New Testament authors use this term last days to refer to the time period between Christ's ascension into heaven after his resurrection and when we expect him to return, right? And James and Paul, they both seem to think that it was possible that Christ could return in their own lifetime. They were living in the last days, well, almost nearly 2000 years later, we're still in those last days. Right? We believe that it's true, we hope that it's true that tomorrow Christ could return. That before this sermon's over, Christ could return. We have to ask, are we prepared for that? Are you prepared for that? Cuz it's really sometimes it's kind of a fear of mine that when Christ returns, I'll be watching Netflix. Right? When Christ returns, I'll be playing a game on my phone. When Christ returns, I'll be watching some football. None of those things are bad. Right? But He's called us to live as if the end is near, because it, it very much could be. So, what does that mean for us and our finances? See, I think it's easy as we talk about finances to swing to one side of the pendulum or the other right? One side would be to say, oh man, Christ is coming back. Just get rid of that money, right? Give it to the poor. Give it to the needy. Just give it all away. God will take care of you, right? That's one side of the pendulum, and that's not wise, right? The, the Bible talks plenty about using wisdom and, and saving money and having money set aside and And I I think most of you are probably doing those things. So, like, a 401K is not inherently evil, and your Roth IRAs and the savings that you have, that's wise to do those things, right? But the other side of that pendulum is going to say, cling on to everything you have and pinch every penny, right, and save and save and save. And this is where the biblical authors are going to come in, like King Solomon, and say, all that's vanity, right? Right? Christ returns tomorrow, it doesn't matter how much you have saved in that bank account. And so this is the part of the sermon, probably, where we start feeling kind of depressed. It's like, man, I'm tired of hearing about money. Give me a second. We're about to switch to another train of thought, right? But I want you to be encouraged. I don't want this to be a discouragement for you to make you feel like, hey, I just want your money, right? Just give us all your money. I don't want that because I'm reminded of the parable I'm reminded of the story in Mark chapter 12. Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and they're watching the Pharisees coming in and out of the synagogue. And the Pharisees are bringing up, and they're making a show about how much money they're giving to the synagogue. Right, and then this widow walks in. She's got one coin. She lays that in. She walks right back out. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, she has far more faith than any of the Pharisees. See, here's the principle that we want to get about when we're talking about money. God does not need your money. He desires your faithfulness. Catch that. God does not need your money. He desires your faithfulness. Do we really think, we want to convince ourselves that the sovereign creator of the universe actually needs an extra 20 from us? That whether we're tithing 5% or 15%, that's gonna make a difference in him saving the nations? He desires our faithfulness. Right now, your faithfulness, as James is gonna say, will play out in how you use your money and what you do with it, right? But it's it's faithfulness that he desires. And so for us, we wanna be prepared for judgment. We want to be found faithful. If, if Christ were to return today, we want to be found faithful with the resources that He has given us. So James switches his train of thought in verses 7 um, through 11, and, and he's encouraging the church to, to be patient in their suffering. Um, when I was younger, about 10th grade, I got in a wreck. And I hit my face really hard on the steering wheel and it knocked a few of my teeth out. So I had to get a lot of dental work done to get a bridge put in, grind some teeth down. And they were shooting me up with Novocaine or I had a sensitive tooth. It was not fun. Not a pleasant experience, right? So when I was in seminary, I hadn't been to the dentist in a while. So I went to the dentist, got checked up. They said, everything looks good. I'm like, yes, right? So I didn't go for like several years after that. Well, I went to the dentist a couple weeks ago and I've got all kinds of problems. Um, I would not advise skipping out on the dentist. I had like six cavities and they wanted to pull my wisdom teeth out. Man, so the past couple weeks, I've spent some time at the dentist. Uh, They they were shooting me up with Novocaine. They're drilling on my teeth and I can smell the teeth burning as it's going on. It's just a terrible experience. If anybody's a dentist in here, God bless you, but that is just an awful experience. The whole time I was sitting in that chair... Man, this is awful. Right? But I know that it's coming to an end. I know that on the other side, as I'm going through the suffering of, of having my teeth drilled into and teeth pulled out and everything else, that on the other side, there's an end to the suffering. There's a goal in mind for why I'm doing that. But in the moment, really going through what seems to be some real suffering um, for me, And so much more, much greater suffering is the believers that James is writing to. Again, they're being persecuted for their faith. We believe that many of them are probably being uh, killed and martyred during this time. And so this is what he writes to them. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. Late rains. Now, let's just be honest for a second. We as Americans and sitting in this room, we're not the most patient people in the world, right? Our society is set up to get us things as quickly as possible, right, whenever we want them. If if you're sitting at the house and you don't feel like going out to get fast food, if that's not good enough for you, you can just get Uber Eats and someone will go get your food for you and bring it to you. You don't have to even leave the house, right? Um, This is... This is a shout-out to Pastor Tommy, but you think about Chick-fil-A, right? This wouldn't be a good sermon without a Chick-fil-A illustration. You could go to Chick-fil-A at any time of the day. The line could be backed out all the way down the road, and you're going to get that chicken sandwich in about four minutes. That's pretty good, right? But that wasn't good enough for us. So what did Chick-fil-A do? They built two drive-through lines. So now you can get your chicken sandwich in two minutes, Right? And we expect that to be the case. We're just not a very patient people. And so when James uses this illustration, this analogy of this farmer, you think about what farmers do. They they do this laborious work of of planting seeds and watering and, and tilling soil, and they're expecting produce to come, but they're expecting it to come many, many days and weeks down the road. Right? And interesting in this is that James tells them to wait for the late and early rains, the spring rains and the autumn rains. This is a reference from several places in the Old Testament. One of them is Deuteronomy 11 verse 14. God is promising his covenant faithfulness to his people and he says, just as you hope and expect the early and late rains to come, know that I am faithful. Right? And so several of the prophets are going to use the same exact language. Every time in the Old Testament you see this language of early and late rains, spring and autumn rains, it's a promise of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And so the people that James was writing to, steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, they're going to immediately pick up. They're going to look back and they're going to think about Israel's long history, this long-awaited Messiah, how God was faithful right? to bring the Messiah about in Jesus Christ. And that's supposed to give them encouragement as they look forward to Christ returning to save them from this current evil age in which they're suffering. Right? And so for us in this room, we want to hold on to the promises of God and be patient as we wait. You may be in a job that you absolutely hate, right? Who all's working in a job that absolutely hate? Been there, done that. Right? He's called you to be patient. You might be sharing the gospel with a family member. They just will not come to faith. Why why won't you save them? Be patient. Right? You're making disciples. Man, this person's a knucklehead. Be patient. He's called all of us to be patient. Look at verses, look at Verse 9. So the first that we want say would be patient like a farmer. Um, verse 9, he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So you think about these, again, these believers are suffering persecution. They're going through trials. They're going through tribulations. It gets kind of easy when things get hard to start grumbling with one another. Right? We're, we're leaving for vacation this afternoon. Why do we go on vacation? To get away from the stress of life so that we can relax. You hang out on the beach, you enjoy the water, everything is good, right? Should be a low stress level. But what are the highest stress levels of vacation? Getting to and from, right? You pack, you pack the whole car up, you pack the kids up, you just left the house two minutes ago, and somebody's got to use the bathroom already. Right? So we start fussing. You start fussing at your wife, start fussing at your kids, grumbling back and forth. Right? So we, we understand what it's like to grumble. But he's calling the church, he's calling believers, hey, don't, don't do this. Think rightly about one another. Right? If you're in Christ Jesus, every person sitting in this room is somebody that Jesus shed, Jesus shed his blood for. Right? You've been adopted as a son and daughter. You're brothers and sisters in Christ. When I was younger, I was in, my family took me to New York with a big group of people. We went to see a Broadway play. Um, it was The Lion King. I was 12 years old. Don't take a 12 year old to see a Broadway play. It was absolutely terrible. I hated every second of it. Never wanted to go back to another Broadway play. Take me to the arcade. Let me go watch some sports. Don't want to watch The Lion King, right, musical on Broadway. Um, so we went back when I was in high school. And my mom said, Hey, we're we're going to go see an off Broadway show. And I was like, Uh uh. Don't want to do that. She said, No, no, no. I think you'll like it. It's C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters. And I said, Okay. It was fantastic, phenomenal. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, if you've ever read The Screwtape Letters, I would highly recommend it. Um, In the book, this is what C.S. Lewis does he paints the perspective of a demon. Right, and this this elder demon, and he's training this younger demon how to one keep keep people from becoming Christians, and for two, when they become Christians, um, to keep them from growing in their faith. And so, one of the things that that C.S. Lewis points to when this demon is training this younger demon, he's saying, "Go for their unity. Try to pit them against one another. Look at this from." The screw tape letters. One of our great allies, this is the older demon writing to the younger, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me, I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patience sees is the half finished, sham gothic erection on the new building estate. He is unaware. He is not able to see what we see, the church mighty as an army with banners, able to make us tremble before God's purposes and plans. Rather, he sees the half-built working of God in the hearts of his people. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that, selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided, provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes. The patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. He says, if you want to distract him from growing in Christ, just cause him to look down the pew. The thing for us as we're sitting in this church, again, all of us, been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? That's your brother and sister sitting beside you who need you to love them, to care for them, to support them so that they and you can grow in Christ, right? One of, again, one of our greatest displays of the gospel as a church is our unity that we have in Christ Jesus. Despite your background, despite the color of your skin, despite your financial situation, We come here on Sunday and we praise God together for who He is and what He's done, right? We want to be unified, Um, so we want to be patient with one another. And the final example that He gives in in verses ten and eleven is an example of suffering and patient brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate. And merciful, So he encourages the church here. He says, if you want examples of how to deal with suffering, look to the scriptures. Think about the prophets. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah had to walk around with no clothes on for three years proclaiming this message of judgment. Right? Jeremiah, no one listened to his message. Right? He went his whole ministry shouting out the things of the Lord and no one listened. People wanted to have him dead. Ezekiel. You think about the prophets, and what they had to go through as their suffering, seeing their people turn away from their God. But he says, if you want this chief example in the Old Testament, look at Job. If you're familiar with the story of Job, you know that Satan is going back and forth on the face of the earth, and he comes up, he's he's having this conversation with God, and um, God looks and he says, well, try my servant Job. He's righteous. And so what does Satan do? He comes in, and he takes away his home, takes away his possession, kills his children, Right, the only thing that was that was left was his wife. He go and he didn't curse God. he go, So Satan goes back, have this conversation with God, and he says, he says, "I'll let you do him physical harm, just don't kill him." Right, so Job just lost everything he's got, and now he's got boils from head to toe, and he's sitting there and he's scraping off these boils with pottery, and his wife, the only thing that God left him, looks at him and says, "You're an idiot." Right? Why are you doing that? Just, just curse him. Job doesn't do it. Right? My guess is that none of us, I would go to venture that none of us have suffered quite in the same way that Job has. Right? And James points back and he says, just like Job, remember God's faithfulness. Now, let's be real honest in this room. Although you may not have lost all of your children, all your possessions, all your belongings, and broke out in boils, right? I imagine there's a lot of real hurt, real suffering going on in this room right here today. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've lost a spouse. Maybe you've lost a parent. Maybe it's a miscarriage. Maybe it's cancer. God says, remember what James says, remember his compassion and his mercy. That he's not far from you in your suffering. And our chief example of this, right, is Jesus Christ himself. Because the Father had to watch his Son go to the cross and take on the sin of us. Right, The death that we deserve, the punishment we deserve, he had to watch his son whom he loved so dearly. He took that on our behalf. So our God knows suffering. He endured it at the cross. And I hope if you're a believer in this room today, I hope as you're going through suffering, whatever that might be, that you can look to Christ. the source of encouragement, right, to know that he is with you in that. And the beautiful reality is is that one day he's coming back. And one day there will be a new heaven, a new earth where suffering is no more. If you're an unbeliever in this room, you don't have the reality of that hope, I call you to Christ. He saved you. He loves you. He wants you to place your faith in him. We want to be patient like Job. We want to be patient in our suffering. Um, The final verse that we'll look at before we wrap up, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So that you may not fall under condemnation. In the old Levitical law, it was said that, that you could swear by the Lord and it bound you to whatever promise you were going to do. And so, um, in the Levitical law, if you swore by the Lord's name, then you, you bound yourself to that promise that you made. So, it was a big deal. James, he's sitting here and he's telling the church he's like, listen, we're on, Christ has come. There's liberty in Christ. There's freedom in Christ. You no longer have to make these claims to back up what you're saying. The reality for Christians, for believers, in our speech and everything that we say, that it should be reflective of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And There's a lot of liberty in this. So just very practically, if, if someone asks you, hey, can you help me? You don't have to make up an excuse if you literally can't help that person. You can say No. And let it be known. If you're going to do something for someone else, if you're going to be somewhere, you're going to help somebody, if you say, yes, you're going to do it, do that. Let it be consistent with the character that you have. But we don't have to swear by the name of the Lord to, to bind ourselves to our promises. Our speech should just be such that it reflects the character that we have in Christ Jesus. And so encouragement for the church is to be honest with your words. Um, say what you mean and mean what you say. And let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, I know that that may have felt like we were just all over the place. And we were, right? We looked at finances. We want to be wise with our money and how we, how we spend our money. We want to be patient in suffering. And ultimately, we want to be um, honest with our words. And so if, if you're in this room, um, we're, we're, the band's going to come up, we're going to have a time if if you need to talk to someone if you know you're not in Christ Jesus this morning if you want to accept him as your Lord and Savior you can make your way to the two crosses in the back of the room, we have people that would love to talk to you, I'll be down front you're more than welcome to come talk to me, um, just as a church family thank you so much for allowing me um, to be here with you today to preach it's an honor, it really is so um, I'll pray for us the band will come up and 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 we'll worship father we love you we praise you we thank you so much for christ and we thank you uh, for the grace and mercy that you've shown us in him and um god i I pray right now that, that for for the believers in this room that we would seek um to honor you in every area of our lives that we would seek to honor you in our finances that we would seek to honor you even in the midst of suffering um, that we would trust and we know that, that Christ is returning. And, and if he doesn't return before we die, we'll get to see um, Jesus face to face. And we'll get to be in his presence for eternity. And So um, just thank you so much for this opportunity. I thank you for your word. Thank you how it shapes and molds um, our lives. And we just thank you so much for Christ. We thank you for the salvation that we have in him. We love you. We praise you. pray this in Christ's name. Amen.